listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you for spending some of your time with us this hour. It is a great day today, not necessarily outside in the weather, but a good day today. If you happen to be the sons of Russian spies who want to be a Canadian citizen, that's a good news day for you. It's a good news day for you if you are a broadcaster who wants Canadians to not be able to watch the American ads during the Super Bowl. It's a good day for you. If you also happen to be convicted or uh, had pleaded guilty, pardon me, of assaults at an all-boys Catholic school in Toronto, also kind of a good day for you because three former students, as you heard in the news, of that all-boys Catholic school here in Toronto, accused in an assault and two sexual assaults on campus, have been sentenced to two years of probation. Two years of probation. There's going to be a lot of discussion about that, about whether or not that is an appropriate punishment for what we have heard about, the details that we have heard. Obviously, the names cannot be released because of the ages of the accused. That decision coming down in court just a short while ago, and I can tell you that when the decision was read, the judge just abruptly got up and left, said, here's what I'm saying, probation, uh, the courtroom's too noisy, I'm leaving. I don't want to be misquoted. That's essentially what the judge said and left. We're going to try and get more on that coming up on the Alan Carter Radio program because those are some of the big stories we're watching today. But the big announcement this morning is a $1.46 billion deal between the province and the federal government for subsidies for rent for those that are most vulnerable in our communities. Here is Federal Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development, Ahmed Hussein, talking about the Canada Benefit. This uh, Canada-Ontario Housing Benefit is a direct benefit that will go to individuals and low-income households in housing need. And the minister told a powerful story to illustrate the need for social housing. And he saw firsthand how an affordable place to live uh, in a social housing unit can mean the difference, can make the difference between actually uh, attending university and, and fulfilling his dreams in this country. And I uh, want to tell you that that young man felt the, the, the impact of having that unit uh, as a way to establish themselves in Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, I was that young man. And I can tell you that I would never have been able to attend university had it not been for that uh, subsidized apartment unit 100 meters north of here. We're going to talk more about how this subsidy will actually be handed out in just a moment, but I think this is important to note, to look at the numbers, the overall numbers, and I don't do this as a way of saying that this is not a good investment or that this is not a good way to spend our money. But I think sometimes in the media we don't take a holistic look at these sort of things. And so we have reports about, well, here's, you know, all sides coming together with a big announcement. But we don't look at the bigger numbers because I think it's important to look at what the government books are saying federally. The federal deficit now projected to be $26.6 billion in 2019-2020, and that is up from $19.8 billion that was projected in the 2019 federal budget. And the deficit is projected to rise to $28.1 billion in 2020-2021, which is higher 
than the $27.4 billion that the Liberals estimated it would be in their re-election platform. So obviously we are spending a great deal of money in this country, far more than we take in, to the tune of $26.6 billion. And that just puts into context this several billion dollars that we're talking about here in terms of a housing strategy. Now, some of the money is going to come from the feds. Some of the money is going to be coming from the province. From our Matthew Bingley, who is covering this for us for Global News Today, tweeting that individuals will be able to apply for this program, the federal government budgeting about $2,500 per person, but it is up to the provincial government to see how the money is doled out and in what amounts. Here is the Provincial Affairs Minister, Municipal Affairs and Minister of Housing, pardon me, Steve Clark, who talks here about deciding where the money goes. The announcement is a, is a portable housing benefit that uh, the household can use um, for the type of housing that meets their needs. There are 47 service managers across Ontario that will be deciding how the money is handed out. To talk more about how this money will be used and whether or not it will be effective in dealing with housing issues in this city, I'm pleased to welcome to the program Toronto Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam. Hello, Kristen. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Do you see this as a good news day for Toronto? Uh, yes, I do think that this is a very positive uh, news story, uh, certainly a long-anticipated um, uh, campaign promise from the federal government. Uh, clearly, they would not be able to do this without uh, provinces putting up their hands saying that they're, they're in. Um, and uh, you know, congratulations to Minister Clark uh, for actually leading the charge from Queen's Park. Um, so I do think overall it's a, it's a very good, uh, good news day for Toronto and Ontario. There's often some bad blood between Toronto City Council and Queen's Park, but lately we have seen that sort of, you know, patched up. Is this further evidence of a patching up of that relationship? Well, I, I don't think that, um, you know, it, it could hurt, um, you know, by, by getting together and working together. And I think that, you know, in the in the conversation I had with Minister Clark today, even at the announcement, um, I congratulated him personally. I said, you know, I recognize his leadership in this. Um, I am one city councillor who has seen the devastating effects of unilateral announcements coming out of Queen's Park and the effects it would have in local communities, whether it's the bringing back of the Ontario Municipal Board, uh, stronger than ever before, or even the, you know, the unilateral slashing of city council during the middle of an election. Um, those are things that um, that were done, um, and, uh, and they have not been undone. And if worst um, case uh, that happens is that if there are moving forward opportunities where we can work together, I will certainly take every single one of those. Um, and if this is one of those um, things that this, this particular provincial government is interested in working on, which is to end homelessness, to address the emergency and the crisis that's in Toronto neighborhoods and streets, uh, I will always be there uh, if the province is willing to rise to the occasion. Are you confident that the service managers, and that's how the money is going to flow in this province, are that they will be able to distribute the money uh, effectively and to the right populations? Um, it, it sounds to me there's a lot of details to be uh, to be ironed out, uh, even by way of questions from the, the media at today's announcement. Um, it sounds to me from Minister Clark's responses that uh, th- he's actually leaving this to uh, those service managers across Ontario to sort out how uh, these new funds, um, when they become available after the, uh, the budget is passed, how they can become helpful to those who are teetering on the verge of homelessness or trying to get into the housing market. 
Um, so it, a lot of details uh, still uh, to be sorted out, a lot of questions that we don't have answers to as of yet, um, but overall it's a step in the right direction and, and clearly something that housing advocates as well as um, uh, contain in the federal government's own national housing strategy is that they have promised that a portable housing benefit uh, was coming, so today was their way of delivering and at least announcing it's now on its way. I was struck by the same thing, Councillor, when Minister Clark was asked about this, and he basically just said, well, the service managers will decide. There are a number of populations in need. There are a number of, uh, you know, people that are going to want to need the money or need this money. And in the budgeting of 2500 per person, the minister was saying, well, it could be more, it could be less, depending on individual circumstances. That, that seems rife for problems in terms of these managers making those decisions. Um, I think the minister was struggling to provide uh, a bit more detail, uh, largely because he um, he was being asked a question uh, that number one he didn't have a specific answer to. But I, I also think that the the twenty five hundred dollar average number, um, what I what I gleaned from his answer was that if it was rolled out nationally, and I think it was actually uh, Minister Hussain that said that um, if it was rolled out nationally, then on average about twenty five hundred uh, would be available to uh, to a particular individual. But for prop, um, for cities uh, that are extremely expensive, where the cost of housing is through the roof and where everyone's feeling the housing squeeze, uh, cities like Toronto and Vancouver, clearly $2,500 is not enough. Um, in cities like ours, um, I think um, in, in my conversation with MP Adam Vaughan, uh, he said that those numbers, based on their calculations and modeling, uh, would be closer to $6,000 plus, uh, which would actually make much more sense uh, in a hot and heated uh, housing market such as Toronto. You likely heard in my preamble the financial numbers, the deficit numbers federally. Overall, does that concern you? I mean, if you take away the fact that you say, well, this is absolutely money we must invest right now, when you see those big deficit numbers, does that concern you? Um, I mean, obviously, we we should all be concerned as as Canadians, um, especially as we're moving into this global economy where automation is on the rise, where we see people's jobs are are um, almost being outsourced or perhaps shipped overseas or being lost to the the threat of auto- automation. We should be concerned, um, but at the same time, uh, we need to also address what is an immediate crisis and uh, and clearly an emergency uh, in cities, especially expensive cities such as Toronto. Um, people cannot wait. Um, And uh, even if there is a deficit, we have uh, 11,000 people sleeping rough in the city of Toronto. That's 11,000 people not in housing that's safe, uh, that's not affordable and accessible. It means that they're not working. It means that they're uh, probably going in and out of the uh, the hospitals through the ER system, which is extremely expensive. Uh, It means that they're living in shelters, um, and uh, and shelter systems, as we know, is far more expensive for governments to provide uh, than any type of uh, housing subsidy. Uh, so we do need to, to sort through uh, what are the emergent uh, uh, issues and, and, and urgent issues that we need to address, um, and at the same time, don't take our eye on, 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 the, uh, on the objective of making sure that the economy is working for everyone, where we actually can, at some point, uh, you know, manage our deficit, and, uh, and sometimes deficits mean that we're investing in roads, we're investing in hospitals, we're investing in infrastructure, and critical infrastructure for a country as large as Canada is is important, uh, 
especially if we're trying to connect this country uh, with transportation and, and a road system. Uh, so I, I think that we need to be able to do it all, um, but we have to manage it uh, responsibly. Um, and for those who are in, in immediate harm's way, and that would include those who are, are already homeless, uh, which is over 11,000 in the city of Toronto, and then the fact that there's 181,000 individuals on the social housing wait list to get into affordable housing that they can pay for based on their 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 limited income, uh, those individuals cannot wait. So today's announcement goes uh, one step further. It doesn't solve our problems overall, but it certainly is, is a good start. Toronto City Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome back. Beginning today, Rogers and Bell and other telecommunication providers in Canada must implement something that helps to block scammers from calling you. I don't know if your phone has been lighting up recently with all kinds of scams and calls for duck cleaning and so on and so forth. It's gotten to a point where I just don't answer the phone anymore at all. Uh, And if that's bothering you, well, the CRTC says that uh, Bell and Rogers and these other telecommunication providers have got to do something about it. Robert Giz used to be Premier of PEI, but now he is President of the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association, and he joins me on the line. Hello. Alan, great to be on the show with you. Thank you so much for joining me. So what is it that the telecommunication providers must have in place today? Yeah, well, you know, this is a not only a problem for Canada, it's a, it's a worldwide problem. And uh, as you mentioned in your intro there, you know, uh, spam or spoof calls is something that has been growing over the last number of years. And there's uh, always bad players in, in around the world that are trying to uh, find new ways uh, to take advantage of uh, individuals. So uh, our members have been working collectively kind of behind the scenes uh, over the last while, trying to come up with some solutions uh, where we can block uh, these calls coming in. So uh, we've been working with the CRTC lately. They put a uh, deadline on it for, I guess, Thursday today uh, to introduce something called universal call blocking. Um, now, that is basically what it will do is universal call blocking is a system that blocks blatantly illegitimate calls. For example, calls with uh, a caller identification information that either exceeds 15 digits or does not conform to a number uh, that can be dialed. Like, for example, if you see 10 zeros in a row, you know that's not coming uh, from, a, from a legitimate number. So as of today, um, our members are abiding by uh, this new set of rules, and hopefully we'll see a uh, decrease uh, in the amount of uh, spoof calls that Canadians are receiving. By September 30th of next year, telecommunication companies will have to implement technology that will allow customers to see the origin and identity of calls. They are also mandated by the CRTC. Why is it that these companies that make a handsome profit from Canadians have to be forced by a regulator to do these things? Well, actually, in fact, what we're doing is working with the regulator. and and, uh, You've been given a deadline by the CRTC. You've been given deadlines. Yeah, well, there... That is a, a deadline to ensure that we can get the proper processes in place to make this happen. So it's actually called Stir and Shaken, um, and it's going to be almost a system where uh, when a call comes in, uh, that you'll be able to see whether or not it's coming from a, a legitimate call or not, according to technology. But this is very 
uh, a technical manner to use. And it's also very important to remember that, you know, 90, at least 99% of the calls that are going through the system uh, are legitimate calls. So we want to make sure that any new mechanisms that uh, we put in place uh, are not going to be detrimental to the legitimate calls that happen out there. And I'll say this as well, even while we constantly evolve to try to stay one step ahead of uh, those organizations or individuals out there that are trying to attempt to do these uh, spoof and spam calls, uh, you know, the bad guys out there are constantly evolving as well. So this is, while we're implementing these uh, new processes, uh, I, I can assure you uh, that the uh, bad guys out there will be looking to find new ways around it and will be continuously trying to evolve as well. Robert Giz is the president of the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association. Thanks for joining me on the program. Thanks, Alan. My pleasure. Let's go to court, shall we? And the sentencing is in now for the three former St. Michael's College school students. And Jamie Marocker is Global News Reporter is covering this for us. Jamie, hello. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm good. What's the reaction? What was the reaction in court when we heard uh, what the actual sentencing was? So, so the actual sentence was actually read out in the most bizarre way that I have ever seen in court. Essentially, Justice Brian Wiegand, uh, he sat at the front, very, very quickly muttered two years probation for all three, and then walked out. And everybody was like, what just happened? And then all of a sudden, the families burst into tears. They were hugging the, uh, the, the three boys, and, and they were rejoicing in the fact that there was no jail time needed in this case. But um, it was a very strange way to make the announcement. No decision was read out in this case. Um, and a portion of that, we're told, is because the justice didn't want to be misquoted. Um, another portion of it is he has a, a flight catch. It was just... What? It's been, it, Alan, it has been the most bizarre morning in court. Has the Crown spoken outside of court yet? Um, we actually just caught the Crown. They haven't spoken officially. We just caught her downstairs to talk about, does she know if the decision is going to be released? Because there was also the question of redacting some information in the justice's decision just because there's potentially identifying factors. Um, she said that they're still working on that, but she doesn't, like, so far the media, she feels, has been um, quite accommodating. We, no one has broken the publication ban, so she doesn't uh, see a reason not to release that decision today. Because the Crown was asking for jail time a year, if I'm not yes. correct. Is that yes. correct? Yeah, so it depends on which um, boy you were talking about. So, again, there were three different boys, and the charges were sexual assault with a weapon as well as assault with a weapon. And then one of the boys also had a child pornography charge because if you uh, remember in this instance, um, they were videotaped with an iPhone and kind of circulated via social media. So they pled guilty to all those charges, and they were basically, the Crown was basically asking, depending on which boy you're talking about, between 10 months and a year, um, and uh, no jail time. Two years probation is the maximum when it comes to youth justice court. Uh, however, I can tell you that we were speaking to the lawyers for one of the victims in this case. Um, they have a civil suit against the school, and he said, you know, this sentencing is, and the decision is disappointing. D disappointing because it is only probation and no, and no jail time. Yeah, and we're talking about um, sexual assault here, sexual assault with a weapon. Um, and I do have to remind people, Alan, that, uh, of course, I know it's indeed child pornography, but the day of when this investigation started, I've been covering it since the very beginning, and I actually witnessed the video myself. And um, it is quite, um, 
it's quite egregious. There, there's really no other words. It's, it's horrendous. And although it has been deleted, it still exists out there. It does still exist. And actually part of the um, ending of all of this is that the fob with the video as well as the photos that circulated via social media are going to be sealed permanently. So two years probation, which is the longest amount of probation that is available to the justice, but no jail time. Where do we go forward from here? Well, there is still one case that is before the courts. It's going to pre-trial in the new year. Um, that's one of the other uh, boys who is left over. So these, I guess, the, the three that were tried today, it was the more severe of the charges, but there is one remaining still that we have to go through. Then we have this civil suit that we have to go through as well. In terms of conditions, uh, what was agreed upon today was that the boys are not allowed to have contact with one another. They're not allowed to have contact with the victims, and there are two victims. They're not allowed to have contact with anybody from the uh, 2018 football team from St. Michael's College because they were all members of the football team at, at that point. And they are not to um, uh, own a weapon for five years, and they have to give mandatory DNA samples given the serious nature of uh, these charges. Jamie Marocker is a Global News reporter. This is still a developing story as we try and get our actual hands on the decision from the judge, and you can see that and hear that tonight at 5.30 and 6 on Global News. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate you being on the program. No problem. So, probation, two years probation. These were, as Jamie said, egregious assaults. There were more than one of them. They were violent, they were vile, they were sexual, they were filmed and posted. It seems that probation is a bit light, and I don't think I'm alone in that opinion. Lots of information from the courts and from law. That's what we're going to do in this next segment. Let's begin with an investigation that is underway in Guelph, where police there say they have charged a man with aggravated assault after he allegedly attacked his roommate with a bong. Investigators say the roommates got into a fight because they were playing video games too loudly after 11 p.m. So, the bong came out. One man has been taken to hospital. Investigators say they've arrested a 40-year-old man who is being held until a bail hearing. He's charged with assault with a weapon. And they told us that cannabis was calming, I thought. A couple of Supreme Court rulings you should know about. One involving the Toronto-born sons of Russian spies. They are Canadian citizens, according to the Supreme Court. This couple... Had the kids, whether in Canada and then nine years ago, when they were in the United States, they were arrested there and indicted on charges of conspiring to act as secret agents on behalf of Russia's SVR, which is the successor to the KGB. They were sent back to Moscow as part of a swap for prisoners. Turns out, according to the Supreme Court, those kids can have Canadian passports. They are Canadians. You like the football? You like to see uh, the old uh, Super Bowl? You like the commercials? Well, as of next year, you will not be able to watch the American commercials on your Canadian television. 
Two reasons for that. One, the trade deal. It was basically a done deal. You weren't going to be able to see the American ads this coming uh, January anyway. But now the Supreme Court has overturned that original decision by the CRTC that allowed Canadians to just basically pick and choose. It's called SimSub. That is when Canadian commercials are replaced for American ones because a broadcaster here has purchased the rights to show that in Canada, whatever it is, whether it's the Raptors game or whether it's the Super Bowl. And every year there'd be so many complaints, the CRTC said, no, Canadians should be able to decide, you know, where they want to watch this and what they want to watch. Well, that obviously took a big bite out of the profit for Bell, which paid for the rights to be able to air it in Canada. And now the uh, Supreme Court has said the CRTC was wrong, so it's back to watching endless Canadian tire ads for us. To Toronto Police Headquarters now, and an extremely disturbing case, Jeremy Urbina, 22 years old, he was on his way to pick up food on a study break on December 11th, when he was shot to death around 8 p.m. on a street close to his family's home in North York. It was in the area of Leslie Street and Finch Avenue East. There was a dramatic and explosive press conference at Toronto Police Headquarters this morning. Here is Detective Sergeant Terry Brown talking about this case. This is one of the most callous killings I've ever witnessed in this office. And the fact that they were skulking around that neighborhood for up to six minutes for unknown reasons is, is most disturbing, but the fact that they're still out there is very, very concerning, and obviously we take it very seriously, and we want the community at hand to take it seriously and do what we can to identify and apprehend these people. This is what police are asking for, for you to take a look at a couple of pictures that they have posted and we will have on globalnews.ca today. Two pictures of surveillance video of two suspects who, as you heard the detective talking about, were essentially just skulking around, Leslie and Finch, on December 11th. And when they encounter Jeremy Urbina, this young man, they open fire. Here's the detective talking about what the video evidence is telling investigators. It's our investigative belief that these two individuals, whoever they are, were there possibly to look for someone individual, some particular individual, or even more disturbing, they could have been in the area, just in that area, looking for anyone who happened to be there. And unfortunately, Mr. Urbina is the victim of what appears to be an opportunist killing. This, ladies and gentlemen, appears as though a human being was hunting another human being. This is how this plays out. That is Detective Sergeant Terry Brown with the Homicide Squad here in Toronto. Jeremy Urbina was not known to police. Entirely an innocent bystander. Police have now released, as I mentioned, these two photos. The faces are hidden in the photos, but one of them, not entirely. It's sort of a pink kind of balaclava around the face, but the eyes and a portion of the nose are visible. And if what police are saying is true, that this pair may have just simply been hunting in the area, that this was simply a crime of opportunity, they shot and killed the first person they came upon. Here again, Detective Sergeant Terry Brown. We are relying on the assistance of the public to help us locate, identify, 
and apprehend these two individuals because this was nothing short of being callous, cowardly, and evil incarnate. Mr. Urbina did not see this coming. Mr. Urbina has no history with us. And the reasons why these individuals may have done that matters not. The fact that they were prepared to do this is what's most disturbing and alarming, and they have to be located. Again, that is Detective Sergeant Terry Brown of the Toronto Police Homicide Squad in an incredible press conference this morning at Toronto Police Headquarters, all focusing on the death of Jeremy Urbina, 22 years old, shot to death on December 11th. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin, shall we, with a little impeachment peachy peachy talk. The U.S. Senate's top Republican Mitch McConnell says the impeachment proceedings against U.S. President Donald Trump have created a, quote, toxic new precedent that will echo well into the future. The House, of course, has now impeached Trump on two charges, abusing power and obstructing justice, and McConnell says that those two articles failed to meet the constitutional standard of high crimes and misdemeanors. McConnell says that the two articles are politically motivated. Now, the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, hasn't yet said when she's going to send those articles to the Senate for trial, where Republicans almost certainly will acquit Trump, because a two-thirds majority vote is needed to remove a president from office in the Senate. And that means in order for Trump to be ousted, all Democrats, all independents, the two of them, and 20 Republicans in the Senate actually need to vote against the president. That is unlikely to happen. There are so many different ways to look at this, but I want to look at it through this lens. I want to look at it through the lens of religion. And I want to play for you to begin, what Donald Trump said last night, shortly after it was announced that he had been voted to be impeached, and he was talking here about the funeral of a former Republican from Michigan and the burial of her husband. Debbie Dingell, that's a real beauty. So she calls me up like eight months ago. Her husband was here a long time. But I didn't give him the B treatment. I didn't give him the C or the D. I could have. Nobody would have, you know. I gave the A-plus treatment. Take down the flags. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down. He'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up. I don't know. Audible groans there from the crowd. Now, I misspoke there a little bit. Debbie Dingell is a current legislator. Her uh, late husband was a former legislator who had passed away. She responded saying that this has hurt her deeply and has uh, stalled her healing process. But what I want to point out in all of that is the reference or the sort of implied reference to hell. And even though there were groans among Trump's base, and even though some evangelicals and some religious leaders have said that is over the line, 
it sort of goes to what Trump always does in these cases, which is when he is under attack, he goes on a personal attack against someone, and then it all becomes about that. The headlines move on to something else. But what about this invocation of hell? In the House yesterday, we heard something even more religious. This is from Barry Loudermilk, a congressman, with an extraordinary reference in the House yesterday. Before you take this historic vote today, one week before Christmas, I want you to keep this in mind. When Jesus was falsely accused of treason, Pontius Pilate gave Jesus the opportunity to face his accusers. During that sham trial, Pontius Pilate afforded more rights to Jesus than the Democrats have afforded this president in this process. I yield back. That is from the House yesterday and Congressman Barry Loudermilk. Renan Levine is a U of T professor specializing in American politics and joins me on the line. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Much has been made about the evangelical support of President Trump. There were some who bristled at his joke last night. There were many who bristled at Loudermilk's uh, commentary. How solid is that religious base for Trump? Well, I expect that his religious base is still solidly behind him. But one of the things that's remarkable, especially regarding um, Congressman Dingell, is a number of Republicans in the House who just essentially put their careers on the line and their historical reputations on the line with their vote yesterday, right? So they are committed to defending the president. They publicly came out today and said that was too far. So you really have to question the judgment of someone who, you know, has now said something. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, his, the president's instinct is always to strike out. And he keeps pushing this limit that he had the Republicans unified behind him and defending him. And now already there's cracks again. And they're saying, oh, my goodness, like there's like this sort of this collective groan. I can't believe we have to say something about this. I think what's important, though, is that, yes, there's a lot of white evangelical support for the president of the United States, but that overlaps with a number of other things um, that leads to Republican support. Um, and one of the crucial things is that these are people who live in rural, small-town areas predominantly. They pay attention to media outlets. They listen to talk shows that are often very different than the people who are living in larger metropolitan, multicultural, multi-religious, or less religious urban areas which tend to vote Democrat. So very often comments like louder milk are filtered through an echo chamber of their friends, um, of media commentators that don't necessarily suggest that this is very problematic. Um, but yes, I think there are ones, and certainly a lot of historians would be saying things like, really? Come on. I mean, the Democrats would certainly be saying this comparison to Pontius Pilate is really unfair. Um, it's probably way too far to suggest that the president uh, resembles uh, a religious icon uh, in such a way. And it also is misleading, right? The president and his attorneys were given opportunities to participate in the process. Republicans have always been a part of the hearings, even the closed-door hearings that they were a part of. Um, they were limited in what witnesses they could call, but you know they were always there. They were always able to present. Donald Trump was given the opportunity. His lawyers were given the opportunities to respond, and they never took it. 
So, you know, we're looking at these layers and layers. Sure, there's evangelical support, but there's also these other layers where people are within these silos of information where they're not having a conversation with people who disagree with them. So comments like Loudermilk only reinforce existing beliefs. Now, some polls estimate that about 41% of all Americans self-identify as either born-again or evangelical. When it was Bill Clinton being impeached, the evangelical discussion was about the nature of transgression, the nature of apology, because Clinton had issued an apology and was somewhat remorseful. I mean, you can decide whether or not it was true or not. But in this case, it seems that the discussion is more about who is best to further our agenda as evangelical Christians, and whoever that vehicle is, is who we will get behind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There seems to be much more of a transactional nature, which fits the president, that there is a sense that um, I think among a number of evangelical leaders, at least, uh, if not their followers, that um, there was something about the divine behind his election. Uh, When people didn't expect it would happen, yet it happened, and now he's there uh, in exchange for their support. He is, um, even though he is not, a regular churchgoer, um, that he is someone who is sympathetic to their agenda uh, and is pushing policies that they like. Um, and, and I think they reflect that. Now, one of the things I think is curious about this impeachment thing is that I think the Democrats in many ways are surprised because Mike Pence is really the evangelical religious political leader. He was a governor of Indiana, but while governor of Indiana, he took a number of steps uh, about um, same-sex marriage and um, abortion that really endeared him to the religious right-wing side of the Republican Party. So there was something strategic about a, you know, twice-divorced uh, philanderer from New York City reaching out and choosing Pence to be his vice president. And here, we're, it's, I think it's really striking. Democrats, I think, expected that some of these Republicans would say, now, wait a second here. The choice here is not Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi. The choice here is Donald Trump or Pence, an evangelical Christian, becoming president of the United States. And so I think in many ways it really is remarkable that the evangelicals are staying true to Trump. Um, But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is... It was already partisan in 1998, but not as partisan. And now it's especially partisan. We've seen the divisions over the last 20 years, right, become even more extreme. There's a sorting going on in America that was going on when Clinton was in office, but it's only accelerated. And that statistic you cited, the one thing I want to mention is we talk about 40-odd percent uh, of Americans identifying as born again or evangelical. But remember, some of those are African-Americans who are, of course, overwhelmingly Democrats. Hernan Levine is a U of T professor and a specialist in American politics. Great to have you on the program and enjoyed your perspective. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. We're going to end with a story about a dumb Christmas criminal. Pullman police say a man who had just been released from jail helped himself to presents from under the Christmas tree in the police department's lobby. This from the Pullman Police Department. Video shows a 20-year-old Washington State University student, after he had been held on suspicious suspicions of underage drinking, walking up to the tree 
And he picks up a couple of packages, puts them under his arm, and walks out. Only then does this Einstein realize the presents are empty. They're just decorative. So he chucks them and runs away. Somebody goes and gets the presents, puts them back under the tree. Police say no charges are being sought. Merry Christmas. We'll see you tomorrow.